Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. This is News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire's Lair. Coming up this morning, I was told recently by someone working in the area of mental health that the two biggest areas of recent discovery and research are mindfulness and the use of psychedelic drugs in a clinical trial setting. Today, I'm going to be joined by Karen DeBauer. She is an MD and Chief Medical Officer at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, about what the latest research is telling us about its use in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll also be joined by Andrew Ware. He is the author of Solved, How Other Countries Have Cracked the World's Biggest Problems and We Can Too. He is a city economist and a senior public servant in Melbourne. And just before the pandemic hit, he had taken on a new role with the city. And as he watched businesses close and everything come to a grinding halt, he was inspired to write his latest book, Recovery, looking at all the times countries have come back from crisis. And we discuss what can be learned from the world's biggest comebacks and the importance of optimism. And with much discussion around pregnant teachers going back to the classroom and an increase in pregnant women with COVID-19 in ICU, I speak to consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist at the Coombe and Talley University Hospital about the latest advice on COVID-19 and vaccinations when expecting. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I refilled my cup with a gorgeous week in West Clare. We stayed at the Armada Cottages at Spanish Point and there is no Wi-Fi there at present. And initially, I was a little worried about how we were going to chill the kids down at the night without the uh, Netflix being there or the tablet being in use. But actually, it was great for all of us, added to the fact that there was a gorgeous sunroom at the back looking out to the sea, mixed with family time, sea swims, great food and laughs with friends. It was absolutely the recharge I needed. And I think it's funny when... You're having your needs met in that way. You're less inclined to start scrolling mindlessly or eat senselessly or maybe you just worry about it less. And I think there are so many things about our attitudes when we're on holiday that I think we could actually adopt into everyday life. And a couple of things caught my eye this week that I wanted to share. I am a big fan of Glennon Doyle. I have mentioned her before on the show. She's author of a couple of books, a brilliant one called Untamed and has recently launched a podcast called We Can Do Hard Things. She was discussing self-care on the podcast and I think her take is so important to consider. She was saying how often we are sold the story of self-care to be lotions and potions and time spent having a massage or a facial. And while those things are lovely, they are more of a maintenance Self-care, she says, should be more about going deeper and dealing with whatever you need in your own individual life to feel well. I mean, self-care stereotypically focuses on escaping life's woes. And while, look, a day at a spa can be hugely beneficial, true self-care, she says, is facing up to whatever in life is causing you the woe and actually dealing with it. And while I do think there are definitely places for the surface self-care and sometimes it's spending time like that just relaxing somewhere that gives you those little insights of what needs fixing I completely hear what she had to say and 
I saw Brezzy post this week about picking up the IBEC Award for Outstanding Contribution to Wellness and he took the opportunity to define what wellness actually means to him and I'm going to quote him because I happen to agree with what he had to say and he says it very well. It is important to define what wellness actually means. It's about the full spectrum of the human condition, the good, the bad and the ugly. It's not just about inspirational memes and fridge magnet philosophies. The pandemic has taught us that they don't mean much. What we've all gone through this past 19 months is the very definition of resilience. You don't need to be better versions of yourself. Just be yourself. You don't need to be blindingly positive all the time. That is simply not achievable. The wellness industry needs to stop pushing these impossible standards of utopian perfection. We are all a little bit cracked and that's okay. That to me is wellness. Recognising that from time to time, not being okay is just part of this mad feckin' chaotic journey we are all on. Here, here. You can email the show, aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Andrew Weir came on the programme last year to talk about his book, Solved, how other countries have cracked the world's biggest problems and we can too. And in 2020, as the world came to a grinding halt in the pandemic, he was inspired to write his latest book, Recovery, looking at all the times countries have come back from crisis stronger and thriving and what can be learned from the world's biggest comebacks and the importance of having hope and optimism. He is on the line now. Hello, Andrew. How are you? Hello, Claire. Great to join you once again. Congratulations on the book. It is lovely that it's based around what the world is is going through at the moment and there's a lovely feeling of, of hope involved in it, that it doesn't all have to be dark and the end, that there is a chance we can come out of what we've been through as a world better and stronger. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I investigated how we've recovered from crises through throughout the last hundred years or so from war, pandemic, natural disaster or recession. And one of the things that I found quite amazing was that in in a lot of instances, countries or cities came out of crises in a much better position than they went in. Uh, they, they actually ended up uh, more prosperous, um, overall better off uh, in, the, in, the, in the years after a, a, a crisis. And that, I thought, inspired a lot of hope for all of us too, that after our crisis, uh, the recovery years ahead are a great opportunity to, to make our world a little bit better. Tell me about coming to the idea for this book. You had taken on a very big job in Melbourne just before the pandemic hit. And it was during that work that you felt drawn to this topic. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I started a job looking after the economic development team in the city of Melbourne, just just as the crisis was starting. And for the first few months of the crisis with... Uh, lockdowns in Australia and, and and empty cities, it was a frantic, frenetic time with businesses closed and we were just working night and day, desperately throwing whatever we could at the problem, trying to keep um, businesses afloat for what we hoped might be um, a temporary period before we came out the other side. But at some point, uh, it became clear that thinking about things only from a short-term perspective was not as uh, constructive as what we possibly needed. And we needed to be thinking about 
the impact of this pandemic on our cities, on our nations, um, from a longer-term perspective, what might this mean for the years ahead? And how should we? How can we set ourselves up to ensure that the recovery on the other side is successful? And and that did lead to an investigation of past recoveries and particularly successful recoveries, and uh, to try and draw together the threads of what makes for a successful recovery. And you talk a bit in the book about how it's not just at government level or it's not just at policy level a grassroots level is is hugely important in the process too oh it's critical critical um one of the or two in fact a couple of the the recoveries that i studied um were particularly related to natural disaster and i one was uh the recovery in Aceh in indonesia following the tsunami uh, from 2004, the Indian Ocean tsunami that killed 160,000 people in Aceh. And, and the other was the recovery from the 2010 earthquakes in Christchurch in New Zealand. And in both instances, involving the community in the recovery process was an essential element of, the, of that process. Communities working together to de- determine the type of future that they wanted to rebuild for themselves community groups uh, organising themselves to, in Christchurch, for example, do creative and experimental things in the vacant spaces that were left behind after the earthquakes. In Aceh, it's um, villages coming together to redesign their villages and work out whether they wanted a mosque or a school or, or a community centre and where that land needed to be located and they had to agree amongst themselves and and. And I think one of the lessons that comes through really clearly is if we want a successful recovery, communities and the community groups that work with them uh, need to be working uh, in partnership with government and um, at, all, at all levels and with other organisations. And communities need to have a, a real ownership over their over their recovery and their vision for the future. You're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna. And I'm talking to Australian author Andrew Ware about how best to recover from crisis and his new book, Recovery. You touched on natural disaster there. The book also looks at the pandemic, of course, at recession in certain countries at certain times and also war. Obviously now the world is, is looking at what's going on in, in Afghanistan and it, it is a humanitarian mm. crisis unfolding before our very eyes and it's going to take a, a an international response to try and, and help those people involved and it can be really hard for people to realise that we're all involved in that in, in, in some way and that we, we can affect change. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the, the lessons that comes through really strongly from the recoveries that I investigated is how we're all connected, interconnected globally. It's such a such a strong theme, whether that be we've learnt that through the health um, connectedness of, of the virus spreading around the world, um, but economically we're all connected um, uh, because uh, unless the entire world is recovering together, it'll it'll drag down the economy elsewhere. And I think when we think about our economic stimulus and and what we can do to set ourselves up for success, thinking globally is part of the answer. Um, whether that be rebuilding in Syria, or whether that be um, getting Afghanistan back on its feet, uh, it's. We all benefit when everyone around the world is performing, you know, is is thriving, are thriving and are at their best. And I think 
one of the lessons that the pandemic has taught us, I think, is is that notion of thinking globally, um, in being insular and um, and living on an island in an island nation like you do and like I do. It's very easy to um, to, to to retreat back into insularity, but but we do have to remind ourselves that we are part of a global community and we will be going forward as well. And how important do you think that optimism is for the human spirit? You talk in the book a bit about how we like the bright light of optimism, the phoenix from the flames, how, you know, that's been an image that people have conjured up time and time again. What doesn't kill us makes us stronger. It's always darkest before the dawn. I mean, these are things that have just been repeated through decades. Mm. How important do you think that is to our spirit? Well, that keeps us going, doesn't it? And and I was just having a conversation today with some people here in Melbourne, and the we're we're still going through a third or a fourth wave here in Australia. And um, every day we look at the the uh, the daily case numbers and statistics, and we we get depressed. And I think uh, what the answer is is looking looking up looking up and beyond the, um, the, the immediate uh, things that are getting us down in our current context to, to out into that medium to longer term future to the sense of possibility and that what could we become? And, and that's where we get our energy from. That's where we get the sense of possibility that, that keeps us going. Um, becoming mired in the challenges of the present is, is, is no way to live, I think. How are things in, in Melbourne at the moment and mood in Australia? Because we have watched, I suppose, how you've handled the pandemic and, and closing the borders seemed like a very tough decision to make, especially for any Irish people wanting to get, to get in or Australian people living here in Ireland, even wanting to go home to visit family. But yet you were able to keep normal everyday life going and keep businesses going and keep socializing going and all of that stuff that's so important and to have gone through all of that and now be faced with with lockdown you're, you're going through a fairly tough chapter of the pandemic yeah it's it's been interesting in australia we've had a real focus on on what, what we're calling a zero COVID agenda the notion of keeping cases at, at or close to zero and every time we get any cases we tend to lock down um, in Melbourne, we've had more than 200 days of complete and total lockdown, not being able to leave our house for more than an hour a day. My six-year-old daughter has spent more than 10% of her life in lockdown um, in Melbourne. And so we've had relatively low death rate, but I think the, um, the impact, I guess, on the, the psychology of us, of us all has is, is been quite profound. Everyone's quite tired. Um, and mental health, I think, is 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 taking a hit. The challenge for us now is to work out how to um, transition from that zero COVID agenda to a more open agenda. Our vaccination rates have been a little bit slower than Ireland's. Um, we need to get we need to get cracking with our vaccination um, and work out how to open up again. And so, through all of this, you've been down. Where have you been down the the bottom of the garden in a shed writing this book, or how did you manage to juggle it all? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, yeah, that's right. There's a, a little granny flat shed in the backyard where I've been um, squirreled away for some of the time, um, while my children roamed wild through the house, <laughs> um, <laughs> pretending to do remote learning. Um, so it's been quite a challenge, um, but I'm not unique in that front. I mean, the whole 
the whole world has been has been grappling with the challenges of COVID, and uh, and we're all coming to an end in some shape or form, which creates a sense of possibility. And and I'm really excited about transitioning to this next phase and what we can become. Well, I just think it's really important that none of us lose hope, and the fact that you can write a book talking about pandemics recession natural disasters and war and come out ultimately with optimism and hope is very needed at Mm. this time the book is called recovery how we can create a better brighter future after crisis author andrew ware thank you very much for coming on good on you claire thanks for having me coming up after the break the clinical trials to treat post-traumatic stress disorder using psychedelic drugs alive and kicking on news talk and you're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Corinne DeBauer is an MD and Chief Medical Officer at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, where drugs such as LSD, MDMA and others are studied for their benefits in mental health treatment. Corinne is on the line now. Hello, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about our work. It's it's very interesting and it's very controversial, isn't it? The whole area of psychedelics. Can you tell me a little bit about you and your work as a, as an MD and and what led you to get involved with the organisation? Sure, wonderful. So I'm a pediatrician by training. I'm from the Netherlands originally. I've been in the states for twenty years and we're doing clinical research for a really long time. Um, the reason I got involved with MAPS and uh, MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, I strongly believe in the mission. And in addition, I'm actually working with my dream team when I was working uh, in vaccines 20 years ago. So it's really amazing to see what a small team has accomplished in the last few years and now been growing tremendously. And I'm happy to share with you the very promising results from our first phase three trials. It's really exciting in my mind particularly, because there's a very large unmet need in the treatment of PTSD. Yeah, we'll get into that in a moment. MAP stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And I was having a look earlier about the mission. And not only are you looking to increase the the research out there and and the amount of, of case studies, but you want to educate the public honestly about the risks and the benefits of psychedelics and marijuana. So what have you found so far? So there are basically actually two organizations. So MAPS is the nonprofit that was started in 1986 by Rick Doblin and MAPS Public Benefit Corporation is a spin-off of that. So um, that was started in 2014 and we are responsible for the clinical trials and working on getting the MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD approved as a legal option for patients to provide that opportunity post-approval. On the other end, and in my experience, in my mind, it fits really well together with the advocacy work that MAPS is doing. So besides the fact that they're the the people who are um, providing or trying to get the donations from donors because it's a fully nonprofit for us to do the work. They're heavily involved in the drug policy reform. And as you know, uh, the war on drugs is being uh, very strict, particularly in the United States. And unfortunately, even though in a lot of states in the United States, marijuana use is legal, on the federal level, it's not. And there's still a lot of people in prison 
for um, only a limited amount of marijuana use. And we know that I'm happy to also tell you, we just got a very big grant from the state of Michigan. We're going to start a um, phase two trial where we are looking into the effects of marijuana on PTSD as well. And why were the links made in the first place to begin these clinical trials? Was it the stereotype that marijuana users can be calm and relaxed and and chilled to use that term and the use of MDMA is associated with a, a euphoric high? And was the idea that perhaps that could be harnessed in a therapeutic setting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me explain a little bit what PTSD is, and then I can talk a little bit about what MDMA specifically do, so your listeners can understand why it's such a good compound. And I want to focus on MDMA here instead of the marijuana. So PTSD is a psychiatric disorder, and that can occur in people who have experienced or witnessed a traumatic event. And one of the central features in people with PTSD is hypervigilance which means they're in a state of increased alertness. They basically are in what we call the flight and fight mode, then where adrenaline runs high in the body as a result of activation in the amygdala. And the amygdala is an area of the brain that contributes to emotional processing and plays a pivotal role in memory. So what is MDMA? So MDMA is a synthetic chemical that has an effect of several parts of the body. And in the context of PTSD, I want to focus a little bit on the effects on the brain. I just refer to the amygdala as playing a central part in the stress reaction. And we know from neuroimaging studies that MDMA effects on the brain are correlated with reduction in cerebral blood flow in the amygdala. And these effects are associated with extraversion and improved mood. So when MDMA is given in the context of supportive therapy that is provided by our MAPS-trained therapists, it provides a unique opportunity to go to the root cause of the problem for study participants, as we have seen from the results in our clinical trials. So it's really the combination of the right set and setting, great therapists, a participant is open to this together with the synergy of the drug. The three of them really work together. And that's that's how we think um, the MDMA-assisted therapy works. How different is the MDMA that is used in clinical trials compared to what could be bought on the street? What we know from what's bought on the street, most of the time it's actually not pure MDMA. It's a lot of times mixed with other compounds and very scary to find out is there it's often mixed with fentanyl. That's when you look into the reports of that are um, out in the literature and there are large databases who look into the side effects. Most of the time when we go into that level of detail, it's not pure MDMA. And we know when MDMA is used um, in a uh, non-clinical setting, for example, at dance parties where people are dehydrated, there are there are definitely concerns. But that's very different um, environment as our clinical trials, which is highly regulated. Our participants are uh, clearly screened, and I have to say very clearly, it's not for everyone. It's it's a uh, 
Our clinical trials are very uh, challenging, both for the participants and for the therapists. I watched a, a documentary on Netflix featuring your organization and I watched a war veteran, a young guy who had seen things in Afghanistan that were impacting his ability to function in daily life. And he took part in a clinical trial. And you can see, as you describe, he's very closely monitored by two therapists in a room. It's a very controlled environment. And over a long period of time, he begins to talk about his experience and the change that it made to his life was 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 revolutionary can it only be used in these situations in ptsd with somebody who is wanting to change as you say and and open to it i think so you know we are currently working on um a rems program this is a risk medication uh, program that we're probably going to be required post approval so to make it very clear mdma will never be a take home medication it will always be mdma assisted therapy and we we anticipating that there're probably going to be two people in the room at least one of them um, a fully trained mdma assisted therapist and the second person might be like an intern, for example, but you're absolutely right. The participant needs to be open to that as well. So when I talk about the word set and setting, it's the mindset of the participant who's willing to go um, deep into the trauma and has the safety of the therapist and the safety of the, of the medicine that really uh, provides them the opportunity to go deep into their trauma and, 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 and further explore that trauma. What of the the criticisms and the controversy that surrounds studies like this? Why do you think there is any backlash around it when the entire pharmaceutical world is based on sometimes turning to the plant world and to the laboratory and coming up with concoctions that have various effects on the body, some with negative side effects, but many of the health benefits outweigh that. And, and so they they come to market. Why do you think this area is so controversial? I think that, unfortunately, the war on drugs has been very effective. You know, people, particularly in this country, but I think it's very similar in Europe, has really been taught, like, don't do drugs. They're dangerous. They're, and even marijuana is like a gateway drug. And we know that's that's very clearly not sure. Uh, not true. And, you know, I come from the Netherlands myself, and um, I must say it's, it's definitely not something we're seeing there. So I think that's part of the backlash. But to talk about a little bit in pharma, you see, it's it's still niche. But compared to six months ago, there are so many commercial pharma companies now who started to work on psychedelic medicine. And they're sprouting up like mushrooms, <laughs> So it's it's really I think the the pharma world is really getting a hold of it. There's a lot of like um, money floating around, and so people are seeing new opportunities. So I'm actually seeing more openness, um, and that's why the importance we need to educate more people in the field. We realize we're we're talking to people who are already familiar with psychedelic medicine, but for example. But we probably realize post-approval and even like pre-approval, what you're seeing right now, participants, patients with PTSD are probably recognized by their GPs 
and not necessarily all psychiatrists. So we need, we need to educate the field what PTSD is and what modalities there are available instead of medications you need to take for the rest of your life. So there's a clear unmathematical need. It's so interesting and must be for you also as an MD that you're now beginning to look at medicines and and drug use to no longer mask symptoms in the long term, but to help people in the short term so that they Mm -hmm. can move on from them because people will start to draw associations with drug addiction and, and the dangers around drugs. But this is a very different setup. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's also there are medications approved in the United States for psychiatric disorders who are actually take home medications are are theoretically more dangerous than MDMA. So I'm very excited to see that. And as a pediatrician, and it's also something that probably most people are not familiar with, to get any drug approved, both in the, in Europe and in, uh, in the U.S., you need to actually have a pediatric plan. So we'll, we'll be waiting some time after approval. We need to generate more long-term safety data from a larger group of people, uh, adult um, participants. But ultimately, we'll, we'll be going into testing MDMA-assisted therapy in adolescents and some younger age groups as well. But that will be, I'm talking several years from now, several years post-approval even. Yeah, it's very exciting. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. For people who want to find out more, you can go to maps.org. But Corinne DeBar, MD and Chief Medical Officer at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you so much, Claire. Coming up after the break, the latest advice from the HSE on the COVID-19 vaccine while pregnant. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, I want to say from the outset of this interview that you're going to get information. There'll be no scaremongering. Um, and I, I want to think of the pregnant women that will be driving along, listening to this and just know that you're going to get information from an expert that you can then take on board. And there has been so much discussion this week around vaccinating for COVID-19 for pregnant women. As the schools reopened, many pregnant teachers expressed concern for their safety. And we've also been given the news that there is an increase in pregnant women being admitted to hospital with the virus and also into ICU. So I'm joined on the line now by Dr. Kleena Murphy, consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist in the Coombe Women and Infants University Hospital and Tala Hospital. She is also vaccination lead for the Coombe Women and Infants Hospital and is a member of the National Immunisation Advisory Committee. Well, good morning, Kleena. How are you? Morning. Thanks for having me. And Kleena, you know, I thought it was important to kind of give that trigger warning. I know you're a mum of four. I have two myself. And it is a worrying time and, and everything in you wants to create protect your baby at, you know, whatever cost. Um, and you do feel in a very vulnerable situation. So you can understand, I suppose, the fear that is out there at the moment. Absolutely. And I do feel for pregnant women because I, I suppose it's the one time in, in someone's life where they've lots of people giving opinions, you know, so um, where you can be having your hair done and people will ask you how far along you are. When's the baby due? Are you going to breastfeed or not? And if not, why not? There's lots of people will give opinions around pregnancy when they mightn't about other things in your life. So it's a little bit disconcerting for people. So 
you know, I, I'm aware they have lots of people in their ears and different people in, in, in different walks of life. So uh, I do totally feel for them. And I do know, you know, we, we are totally aware that pregnant women and moms in general will do the utmost for, for their children and want to do the right thing. Um, and that can, can put a lot of pressure on people. So what are you seeing at the moment in hospitals and in ICU? So uh, I guess just to go back last year when this all happened, we were all very worried. And and luckily, when, when COVID came first, um, we didn't really see a huge impact in pregnancy. And we were somewhat surprised because uh, our experience of the flu had been different. Uh, so so we were sort of pleasantly surprised that luckily, you know, those who, who, who uh, got COVID seemed to be mildly affected and there didn't seem to be a big um, impact, if you like. Um, but that was 2020 and things changed as the various waves and we've seen even the how the symptoms changed in the various waves uh, and I guess there was a change around Christmas where uh, we did see quite a few sick people in January and February um, and uh, you know an increase in, in in serious admissions if you like and I guess you know then there was a bit of a lull in April May this year but now we're seeing sick um, pregnant women again and unfortunately some in ICU um, and I suppose to put it in context, we're not really used to seeing um, pregnant women going to ICU. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, they may maybe after a very difficult delivery um, or some other complication. But usually it's for a day or two and they're back then to the maternity hospital. Um, but unfortunately, if, if somebody goes to ICU with COVID, as you know, it can be a quite a prolonged and lengthy stay. So um, the absolute numbers are not not high, but they're higher than we should be seeing for the population. Um, so pregnant women only make up less than one percent of the population, but we're seeing a bit more with that with hospitalisation and with ICU. So they're making up four percent roughly of hospitalisations. And why do women have to wait until 14 weeks before getting their first vaccine, if that's so, their choice? So at the moment, um, you know, originally uh, when vaccination came out, uh, there wasn't much information there regarding vaccination. And um, those that had been vaccinated who were pregnant, were there were accidental vaccinations, if you like. So they weren't in the studies as such. So um, then uh, they the the thoughts turn to, well, what about pregnant women? They need protection as well. Uh, and some countries st- rolled out a bit sooner than others. So America, you know, the US were the first. Um, and, you know, various countries made various decisions. So one thing we didn't know was, um, you know, A, how people would react to it, you know, whether they would sort of have worse reactions or not than the non-pregnant population. So in Ireland, it was decided to uh, offer it to people between 14 and, and 36 weeks because other vaccines have been offered during that time. Um, uh, and we know people are kind of ultra cautious in the first trimester uh, and a lot of people like to get the stage of their first scan and that. So it was more kind of a pragmatic decision uh, around that. We had no evidence it caused any excess problems in the first trimester but there was very little evidence at that time now we have had good um studies lately from the us which indicates its safety um in people who have had it in the first trimester so it may well be that that evidence needs to be looked at now um and uh, they, they showed that there was no increase in miscarriages in those who did have it in the first trimester and i guess that's useful to know if somebody did have a dose and found out they were pregnant the week after um, that 
there doesn't really seem to be any evidence it causes uh, harm. So, um, but at the moment it is between 40 and 36 weeks because that was when we rolled out and we were, you know, an early country actually to prioritise pregnant women. You're listening to Alive and Kicking on News Talk with Claire McKenna and I'm talking to Dr. Kleena Murphy, consultant obstetrician and gynaecologist at the Coombe Hospital about the latest advice on the COVID-19 vaccine while pregnant. And can we talk a little bit about then the, the, the vaccine hesitancy and, and some of the things that you'll hear anecdotally about yeah. those fears that there were no clinical trials that were all part of this experiment and you know, like we mentioned on the outset, women are doing everything they can to protect the unborn child. They're not having shellfish. They're not having unpasteurized cheese. Yeah. So they're saying, why am I taking on this experimental vaccine and, and putting my, my baby at risk? Yeah, no, they're very relevant things to talk about. Uh, and I think we can't ignore what, what people are thinking and, and talking about. But uh, what I would say is that when the vaccine was rolled out, you know, in early January, we certainly didn't have a lot of real world uh, experience. And there was only the studies to go on, which, you know, particularly were with non-pregnant people. However, um, healthcare workers then, you know, who are pregnant felt they should have the same protection as anybody else. So a few of those, you know, took the plunge, if you like, and did get the vaccine. But since then, we've a lot of real world evidence. Far more people have been vaccinated in the real world than ever were in the original trials, if you like. So there's, you know, hundreds of thousands in the US who've had the vaccine in pregnancy and they followed up. Uh, those cohort and they've shown no increase in either stillbirths, miscarriages um, other adverse effects in pregnancy, small babies, you know, there, there has been no adverse effects. They've also looked at the placentas of people who've had the vaccination and see did it have any, you know, at a microscopic level, any effect on the placenta uh, and uh, they were perfectly healthy placentas. Um, in the in the UK, there's been you know almost sixty thousand vaccinated you know officially with with records, um and in Israel they had about a hundred thousand vaccinated. So what we do have now is real world evidence of the vaccine. And I did see something online. Now it was from a, a, a medical professional, but I would like to ask your opinion on it. And they sure. were talking about vaccine fear and how a vaccine works. And we know there's risks involved in all vaccines as much as there's risks in contracting COVID-19. But the main risk is in the hours and days after getting the initial vaccine. But then it leaves the system. The idea that something is going to come up in five years, 10 years, doesn't really show an understanding of how a vaccine works. Is that true? Yeah. So, I mean, people worry about, I mean, what you hear about is the vaccine may pass here or there's residues of the vaccine. The vaccine is a, a little bit, um, you know, as an injection in, into your arm, it stimulates your own body then to make the antibodies. So that's the effect of the vaccine. So, you know, in the studies, the vaccine only goes into your arm. It's your body's response to the vaccine. Then it, that is the the real thing that happens. And so for moms worried about their baby, the vaccine doesn't go anywhere near the baby. What does happen is the antibodies are produced and the antibodies can go into the baby and protect the baby when it's born. Uh, and we know this from other vaccines that have uh, been given to, to successfully to pregnant women. So with the flu, which 
is to protect themselves and the whooping cough, which is to protect their baby, um, to protect babies when they're born from from the whooping cough. Um, and there has been, you know, no evidence of vaccines given to pregnant women up to now of all the ones we've um, uh, given that have, you know, had long term adverse uh, effects. So can we talk a little bit about the return to the classroom for pregnant teachers and the discussion around whether or not they were safe? What, what was your take on, on those discussions? Well, uh, uh Basically, the, the worry in pregnancy is towards the end of pregnancy. So, um, you know, and, and, and people don't become sick at 10 or 12 weeks. As I said, people are getting sick at, you know, those that are in still small number, 28, 30 weeks. So our advice is for people to get vaccinated prior to that to that point in time. So I, I think maybe um, and I can understand the anxiety for people, um, people who are 10 weeks think that, you know, they are now at that high risk. But in fact, the things we've spoken about, you know, previously in the year about placentitis and about respiratory problems, and that all happens towards the end of pregnancy. So certainly those in second or third trimester, you know, um, if working need to be vaccinated. Um, and I think it's maybe a misunderstanding of where the risk comes in. Um, so there should be very few people who haven't had the option of getting vaccinated. And there is obviously the little gap uh, up to 14 weeks. But for somebody now who, who's, who's uh, you know, 10 or 12 weeks, they've only recently found out they've been pregnant. So unless they're very young, uh, I would expect most people have had the opportunity to get vaccinated, uh, in fact. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's only those who had unplanned pregnancies in the last few weeks who, you know, wouldn't have had the opportunity. Um, and uh, that cohort should reduce very much over the, over the next while. Um, and... In the beginning, there was a delay in people get, maybe getting their appointments. But now once a woman um, books for, you know, for hospital care, etc., they are then put on a list and they will get their appointment very quickly. And the interval between the two vaccines then is is three weeks rather than previously it might have been four or five. Um, so there really should be very few who, who um, are feeling vulnerable. And I suppose we're talking about the classroom because of return to school this week and, and, and into the next week. But I suppose it's any public facing pregnant woman is going to have concerns about her vulnerability. And, and somebody that may have thought, well, do you know what? I'm just going to cocoon a little bit. I, I you know, I'll, I'll stay in a little bit more. That's going to be harder, really, as we're not in lockdown anymore no, and, yeah, and society is opening up. I don't think that's really realistic. It may have been, it was realistic last year when everybody really was doing a degree of, of cocooning and minding themselves. I'm more concerned really about the groups that I'm seeing that aren't, you know, are vaccine hesitant, um, but are working in retail hospitality. Their girls are 22, 23, 24, um, and maybe they don't have the you know, same educational background. And so they have a lot of, um, you know, myths or maybe, uh, you know, maybe aren't up to date with with the science and they're heading into you know serving us in the shops etc um unvaccinated and and really they're the group that i am concerned about because they're the group that we will be seeing in in our icus um you know i know the the, the teachers that you know are anxious about the covid will will be the first to get the vaccine as soon as they're able and they will be protected 
Um, another thing, though, I have come across is, is the personal recommendation from people can work. So I spoke to one girl who said, it's just that I don't know anybody else who's pregnant who's got it. So that for her, you know, she didn't want to be on the vanguard of you know, something. And, and I felt for her. So if she met somebody else who had, um, so I showed her, a, you know, a picture of my sister's baby. My sister got um, vaccinated in pregnancy. Um, she's had a healthy pregnancy and a bouncing baby boy of uh, four kilos. And I think maybe that personal story might have resonated with, with uh, that person. So, you know, I think it is, you know, good to explore what what is the, the hold up rather than dismissing anybody's concerns or feelings, um, you know. But I also think that pregnant women need support from their surrounding family members. If other people in the family aren't getting vaccinated, it'll be very hard for the pregnant woman. So, you know, the partners need to be vaccinated and uh, the mums and mums-in-law um Whereas if there's a feeling that, you know, vaccination isn't uh, something that's done within the family, the pregnant woman probably isn't going to get it done either. So we all have, a, I think, a responsibility to um, support, you know, pregnant women, um, you know, doing this. Well, it's very interesting talking to you and thank you very much for coming on. Dr. Kleena Murphy, consultant, obstetrician, gynecologist and vaccination lead for the Coombe Women and Infants University Hospital. Thanks. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, John Fardy, and to Garrett Mulhall, and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening and getting in touch with the show. I will see you next week.